If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only hearing the first half of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I welcome back my friend and mentor, Thomas Moore, the internationally renowned author of such classics as Care of the Soul and A Religion of One's Own, editor of the essential James Hillman collection, A Blue Fire, and someone who has been teaching soul-centered psychology to therapists, psychiatrists, and other caregivers for over 30 years. In this conversation, we begin to explore questions around what makes a good therapist and what kind of education helps to create a foundation for depth psychology. It's a topic that's as vast and deep as the soul itself. And after an hour and a half, we really just begin to scratch the surface. So I'm hoping that this is just the first of many conversations with Thomas on this theme. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider joining the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks for listening. Oh, I see um, William Morris book on your shelf there. Uh-huh. You know, I think you uh, introduced me to William Morris. Of course, I heard the name and um, saw some of his wallpaper, but um, after you mentioned him in your course, I went and uh, Google searched him, and I I was amazed to find that he had such great personal style, like his hair and beard were right. amazing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah. that's a guy whose aesthetic I can trust because he looks cool. <laughs> he does. <laughs> okay, well, I'm here with uh, Tom Moore once again. Um, Tom, thanks once again for joining us here to share some of your hard-earned wisdom. Oh, Brian, I'm always happy to talk to you. Uh, we, we share a lot of interest and tastes in common, so it's fun. Yeah, I'm glad you think it's fun. I, I really um, I appreciate this connection I have with you because uh, if, if you weren't around, I don't know who, uh, who I'd be able to look up to in terms of um, the kind of work that I like to do with people. Uh, there's uh, not too many other people out there talking about therapy and the soul, the way that you have for so long, like an advocate for soul and uh, unfailing. You haven't uh, pivoted onto some new fad. <laughs> I know people, uh, people ask me, they say to me frequently, do I do therapy? And nowadays I have to say no, because I'm, I really, I really don't, can't take on any new people at all. And um, they say, well, uh, can you tell me, you know, give me some suggestions of people that do the same thing you do? You know, <laughs> you can't, what can you say to that? <laughs> yeah. You, you try to be an individual. You know, Jung talks about individuation all the time, but to be an individual means it's pretty hard to recommend people that, they, people don't do the same thing you do because you're unique. Yeah. Yeah. And well, that, that, you know, that dovetails nicely into the topic that I wanted to speak with you about today in terms of um, the education of a psychotherapist, uh, because I know that you have a, a different approach and it's going over your books again. And uh, I noticed one theme that came up way back in care of the soul and then again in soul therapy. And it's the idea of uh, cultivating an attitude of friendship in the therapeutic relationship. Um, even I think in, it was care of the soul, but maybe it was in the new forward that was written. You were talking about how people would ask you if you could develop a training program and you, um, you always resisted that and uh, upheld this idea of friendship. Maybe that's a good place to start. It's just this uh, kind of general orientation in therapy that you have. 
Oh, I'd love to start there. Um, it's a hard to it's hard to explain this, hard to describe, but for me, I'm sure it's not true for other people listening to me, but for me, the best way to do it is to describe this word that the Greeks had for friendship. They, they used the word philia, which is a kind of love. Philia means a kind of love, but it's a friendship love. It's not eros, which would be uh, an erotic, uh, fantasy-filled, uh, compulsive uh, attraction. That, that's eros. But... Philia is more a, a steady, calm, close, very close, but different kind of, of relationship and attachment. And I use that because when I say that I think friendship is important in therapy, I'm always misunderstood, almost always, because people will think, oh, you mean that you should become friends with your clients? No, I don't mean that. I mean, there should be philia between us. There should be this special kind of, of closeness that is not erotic in any way. So don't worry about that. What I'm talking about is nothing to do with an erotic relationship. It has to do with more like what friends do, but it's not literal friendship. It's, it's the spirit of friendship, the philia, that I think is so important in therapy. That you, but I think that's true generally in life. So what I do is when I go to a shop, a store, I try to have a momentary philia relationship with the clerk there. You know, for me, if I have uh, a two-minute friendship, that's that's okay. That's pretty good. <laughs> that's just as good in some ways as a twenty-year friendship. In some ways, better. <laughs> Because and it's real because the philia can be there if you're a, if you are able to to develop it that way. Now, I, I may mention this to you before, but when I'm at home, especially during COVID, I'd be at home and my my daughter and her her uh, partner were with us, and we'd have breakfast in the morning together, enjoy a long long breakfast because we didn't have a lot to do, and. Uh, the FedEx person would come to the door and I would go out to see her because she looked depressed to me for a while. And I tried to establish this philia, a connection as a form of therapy. I thought it might help her with her depression if we could create a little bit of philia. And after doing that, maybe, maybe 15 times, one day she came and she was smiling and told me about herself. And she had never done that before. She was always sort of sullen and, and quiet. So I went back and told my family, I said, I think we're getting somewhere now with this therapy. <laughs> and only you're paying her to come to therapy with you. That's right. <laughs> and you're getting your um, shopping therapy as well. So it's good for I both am. of you. <laughs> I am. I'm getting something in return, that's for sure. Well, let me see if um if I've got the right feeling about philia. Would you say that kind of an essential ingredient of philia is interest in the other? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't that be the kind of the the first thing is uh the interest that would um cause you to ask people how they're doing, what's going on, Well, sincerely? It's really hard to know what the first thing might be. It could be many things. I have a very good friend now. He's an astrologer, um, Brian Clark, very wonderful guy. He lives in Tasmania, you know, a long way from me. You're probably closer to him than I am. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, my wife and I went to Oxford University one summer. I was asked to come and give some talks to a meeting of some of the world's really prominent astrologers. And we were going to spend a week living there at, at uh, Oxford at the university. So we went into this uh, group. In fact, the room we went into when we first arrived was the one that is in uh, Harry Potter movies where they have they have their dinner, you know, where the the mm -hmm. owls fly over to deliver the mail. It was one of those rooms. 
where that was filmed. And uh, we were there in that place and we didn't know anybody. And you're trying to, you know, a little bit uncomfortable at first because everybody there, were they were all good friends. And um, I'm not exactly a party goer, you know, I'm not good at breaking into groups too well. <laughs> and, and so uh, Ryan came up to us and welcomed us and found us a place to sit and eat and introduce us to people immediately. And that became, I think that was the origin of our friendship, which is very tight now, very, 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 very alive and uh, productive and, and felt, very, very felt. So that was a friendship that began with attention, I guess you'd say, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was interest, but it was attention. Mm. You know, like a, a civil attention to somebody. Right. Yeah. It's like the kind of hospitality that um, is becoming, I think, more rare these days. At least I've noticed it. Um, that uh, uh, intention to care for someone, like see, knowing that you're new, you maybe feel a bit uncomfortable and wanting to make you feel more at home or welcomed. Yes. Yeah. So... Uh, so we've got care, we've got maybe some kind of interest, um, hospitality. I, I like that in terms of, um, welcoming someone into a therapeutic relationship. Like, yes. Yeah. So that instead of just being official, like, you know, if you're okay, your client comes to you and it's just an official thing and you have all these warnings from the profession that you shouldn't be too close and you shouldn't touch the person or say anything, you know, to be very careful what you say and all of that. I understand that sometimes you have to you have to watch out, especially with certain clients. But generally, I think um, those fears uh, are, are really uh, are dealt with if you have a really clear friendship relationship with the person that that is not that's not sexual or erotic. It's and it's not meant to be lifetime, uh, and it's not it's not avoiding therapy by going to coffee with your client or something like that. It's it's not so literal. It's it's a feeling and a, a reality about your relationship that you allow to be close, and it has its own boundaries. You can trust them, and you don't have to be anxious about it. Hmm. You say that one of the qualities of philia is uh, that maybe distinguishes it from other kinds of friendship is uh, is depth, like someone that you can speak to about, um, well, your dreams and your troubles and the things going on under the surface. Yes, yes. So there is something in this relationship, the therapeutic relationship, obviously, that is important and meaningful so you're not just you're not just you know chewing the fat as they say you're not just talking things just to just to talk to somebody it's a significant meaningful thing this is where i would when i in my own thoughts i come to the irish idea of anamkara which um uh you know, a lot of people have read about uh, with John O'Donohue's books, uh, but I, I came across that term long before he wrote about it because that the people in Ireland talk about uh, Anamkara mm -hmm. and they know what it is. And what it is in particular that interests me is that it, it means, that I guess the word means soul friend. My Irish is not so great, but I think it means soul friend. And but what's special about it when you look at the history of it is that it's very old, very old idea going back to the uh, early Christian monks of Ireland. And the idea was that you would have this friend with somebody like a real friendship, but it had the particular quality where one person uh, guided the other. I, I don't know if they did that mutually all the time, but at least one person would help guide the other in their life. So it wasn't just coming together and having a good time, having a good crack, as they say in Ireland. It's not that. It's about uh, actually 
uh, a friendship in which one person can really guide the other. And I, I, know what, I know what that's like. I've had friends like that who have been guides for me, even though the friendship was very strong. That was, maybe that was the most important thing. The guidance element was present. Hmm. And sometimes I think that it's not even um, someone consciously guiding the other or the other receiving consciously guidance from the other, but uh, you maybe realize later on how that person was important in helping to um, to guide you in your life, maybe by leading uh, by example or uh, encouragement or kind of um, helping you to to dream a little further on. Oh, yes, absolutely. It can be much more... Uh... Um, much more, what would you say, natural in its development. On the other hand, the reason I'm bringing this up is that um, it is in the history, you know, people talking about this kind of friendship. And of course, for psychotherapy, that's really a big deal because you're not going to a therapist just to have a good time. You're going there to find some help and guidance and usually in something that's bothering you in your life. I think that's a very legitimate and a very worthy way to have a connection with someone. There's something bothering one of the people. It's what human beings do. I'm in trouble. I seek someone out to be able to talk at a level where it, I might be able to clarify what's going on with me and uh, will be accepted, even though I'm I'm feeling bad about myself at this time. Yeah. Yeah, I often lament that... Uh it's a shame that we've had to professionalize that in some ways because it does seem just like a a natural human thing to do when people are in community and um and caring for each other you know that's true but you know, i've been doing this for 40 years and i kind of like the i like the form myself <laughs> well i was going to say it gives us uh an opportunity to have a, a meaningful livelihood anyway so i agree i mean i think it's the best job in the world for someone like me who's always craved um depth and uh, in real kind of caring connection with people um and finding it hard to to find out in the world sometimes um here's a space that's dedicated to that uh and so it's kind of special the form the the form is interesting because here here you and i are talking in a rather somewhat formal way we have a form here, you know, mm -hmm. that's brought us together and that we're talking. And I think that that uh, what you do is in a in a somewhat somewhat extended sense. It's it's really a kind of therapy. And and I I often say that to people. I, I do a lot of talk on podcasts and radio and things like that. And well, we have been doing that for decades. And I've, I've often felt and have said that uh, the people who are doing this work are doing a form of therapy. It's a talk, it's a conversation, and it's, uh, it has a certain seriousness, and it has a, a rather strong format, form, which helps the process. You couldn't, you couldn't do, you couldn't achieve what you are doing particularly without that form. And I think it's very, very similar with psychotherapy. You have a form, a lot of people say it's artificial. Well, Life is artificial in so many ways. That's okay. And we have these things. Artificial means we have created something. It's not just, doesn't just happen unconsciously. We've created this form. And I think it works pretty well. Yeah, remember artificial has the word art in it. Um, That's right. Yeah, there's something interesting about that because some of the feedback I get from people especially like the kind of more willing participants in a conversation here rather than someone who's uh kind of on a a, a like a, a pr schedule and they've got their talking points and everything but people who really are interested in having conversation and letting um us both be guided by you know whatever some third element that comes in and goes the conversation wants to go in this direction so people who play along with that will often say that um the conversation helped them to clarify something about their work or to reveal something about the work that they hadn't uh, come to before. So like you said about the therapeutic relationship or therapy is that one of the 
uh, I don't know if we say goals, but maybe one of the outcomes or benefits is that it can help people clarify something about their life just by talking it through and the other person um, asking questions that helps them uh, maybe dig a little deeper into it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And sometimes I have this feeling I had it recently when I wish it were, I wish I had an audience in therapy because there are things that happen that I can't, I couldn't, I can't very well describe later, but they're very, I think they would be very instructional for people wanting to become therapists. I don't mean to say that I'm doing it perfectly at all, but I'm just saying that there are moments when things develop in the conversation in therapy that I wish I could say now to people who want to be therapists, notice this and let's reflect on this because this is what happens. It's one of these things that don't usually come up in the teaching, but I wish you could be there and look over my shoulder and see what's happening here. Yeah. Yeah, like those little magic moments that have nothing to do with um, a prescribed technique or therapeutic move. Um, sometimes like a voice will come in my head or a question will come in and I'll just blurt it out and it'll open up something or stir something up that uh, then leads us in a particular direction that feels uh, helpful. Um, one of the things I want to ask you is like, you know, I don't think those are things that you can train people on, but um, are there things, are there qualities or skills that you think can be um, passed on and then developed by a therapist who wants to work people in a, in a deeper way? Are you saying, are there skills that can be passed on to people who want to become therapists? Is that what you're saying? Like the yeah, teacher? but particularly, um, you know, what we might say depth therapists. Yeah. Um, so we're not just looking to help people uh, alleviate stress and adapt better to conventional life. No. For, um, it reminds me that for 18 years, I taught therapists. They're actually mostly psychiatrists. Uh, on Cape Cod uh, in Massachusetts uh, in the summer, they would get, you know, I just taught for a week and uh, these psychiatrists would come to Cape Cod from all over the place, all over the world really. And, and um, they weren't all psychiatrists. There were some social workers and uh, depth psychologists there, but for the most part, they were, they were medically trained psychiatrists. And I felt that my job in teaching them wasn't to give them uh, techniques and tools for their work, but my job was to introduce them to a different way of thinking about what they were doing. And that's a difficult thing to teach, to teach a way of thinking that is different because most of these people were trained scientifically and they were taught to trust whatever can be quantified and expressed in numbers and, and very strict definitions and categories, classifications. It's the modern thing, you know, it's Aristotelian. It's, it's, what, it's the philosophy of the time. And, the, and some of them, especially when I first started teaching there, really argued with me. They, they really fought me because they thought this is all too 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 loose, you know. Where where's your proof for all this stuff? And I would tell them that proof was a defense against wisdom or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that made defense, them against, defense against uncertainty or ambiguity for sure. Yeah, you know? right. yeah. So what I'm saying then is that I this was one occasion where I taught psychotherapy to people many of whom were kind of against me from the start because they felt that what I was up to was kind of new age or, you know, they didn't, under, they didn't know where to put me. Right. It's like wishy-washy. Mm -hmm. They didn't understand that I could do, and what I tried to do, they didn't understand that I could do it intelligently. So I tried to give them, as I went on, some of the background to work, to my thoughts and ideas so that they could feel more comfortable. I understood, you know, where they're coming from that way. So I tried to give them some security 
that I, I had done a fair amount of study and I, I, I knew what I was talking about, but not in the same vein, not of the same philosophy that they had been taught under. So that is a step in our world today to become a depth psychotherapist, as I understand it. You have to deal with the philosophy of the time about how to teach and what to learn and what to consider reliable and uh, uh, that you can trust. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so maybe the first step is, um, do you think it's important then for someone uh, practicing a, a soul therapy or depth psychology to uh, maybe first uh, have a foundation to talk about their work and their approach and, and <clears throat> what it's been based on, that it's not just uh, something made up in the new age? I feel, I still feel that it's important to have some background so that your thought is not, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not too loose. It, see, the trouble is today, a lot, I think what we do is we have a split, which is a, an, always an indication of something not going well. And we have a split between the, the scientific-minded therapists and the kind of, uh, I don't know what to call it, the other side might be, used to be called humanistic. That's not where it isn't used anymore. Uh, but a kind of freewheeling, maybe quasi-spiritual approach to it. I don't know what to call it, but a, a, a very different uh, non-scientific approach. So that's kind of split that way. And these are both in the extreme, it seems to me. The, the scientists are, uh, won't allow this looser approach because they, they have a, they've had a rigid training in this thing and they're anxious. There's anxiety mm -hmm. about being right and being in the right place. And the other side, there's no anxiety about being in the right place. And there's no, there's nothing, there isn't, not, there's nothing to hang on to, really. And uh, so we, we end up with this division. And that makes the, the two sides suspicious of each other. And, and so what I want to do is bring that together. I don't want to say it has to be scientific, but it's got to be intelligent and well-educated. Yeah. Uh, uh, grounded and uh, and and yet at the same time visionary and open-ended so that's what I try to do in my work I try to bring those two things together so that the split is not going to happen mm -hmm. yeah I, I see what you're saying um and trying to put a finger on that other extreme away from the kind of hard scientific approach uh what i what i see out there is um like maybe an over emphasis on intuition as the the foundation or the guiding principle uh and just when you're talking about that split or that big divide um came to mind that um intuition uh is also related to tuition so the educational aspect, like having that foundation in education versus just looking inward for the the wisdom or something. So if someone's looking to have a uh, a foundation for adept psychology, where do you usually point them? Because I know in your course, it's not just psychological texts, but you're also yeah. looking to literature and poetry and, and even music and art, right? Psychology, yeah. We have found, I say we now, I, I feel I've always considered myself as part of a community of not a school of thought so much as a community of people. Uh, James Hillman, Robert Sardello, um, Rafael Lopez Pedraza, Patricia Berry. These are my friends and colleagues that. I really only worked with intensely, maybe in the, you know, long time ago in the 1980s and 90s. And I developed, I became, I, we all became individuals out of that. We were very good together on things for a while, but then we became individuals. So when I say we, that's, that's what I mean. 
And uh, I think that uh, those of us who do this work then, who in a sense kind of shaped archetypal psychology, what we call archetypal psychology, um, we were uh, we were drawn to mythology for sure. And we did a lot of work on mythology and we talked mythologically. Now that is not something new. It's something that's been going on every century since the Greeks, talking about Greek mythology usually. So all the way through history, painters have painted mythological themes. Poets have written on mythological themes and used mythological characters. Uh, all the arts, I think, have used mythology. And our language is actually, our English language is full of Greek words. I mean, Greek everywhere in our language. And even the Greek gods appear in our ordinary words sometimes. And, uh, or the Roman gods. So just one example pops into my head. We talk about having cereal for breakfast. Ceres is the goddess, Demeter from Greece, the, the goddess of the of nature's abundance. So in every morning we are honoring Ceres when we have cereal. It's, I mean, it's in our language. Mm -hmm. You go through so many, many, many words like that, that have that, sometimes the Greek gods, not just the Greek language. So mythology then is a very rich source of insight. It's a way of finding insight into human life and Hillman has done it tremendously, but others as well. Pat Berry has done it very well. And the um, and, and Pedraza. And the, uh, the, the reason it's so important is that the mythology, the characters and the stories from mythology portray the impersonal, the non-personal elements in our daily life. Like for example, when a person, a young person is suddenly struck by love. The, the arrows of Eros have been lighted with a flame and they come shooting into that person and they fall in love with someone. That's not just a personal experience. Like this is not, you say, oh, this person, I know this person who fell in love, isn't that unusual? No, it isn't unusual. It's part of human life. And it's therefore big, it's bigger than the personal. And mythology gives us the figures and the stories to be able to talk about these impersonal things that happen in human life. And that is tremendously supportive and rich. And I think if we're training therapists, I, I've always said this, that I would, if I had a school of therapy, I'd certainly include mythology as part of the training. Well, I like how you say that. If I had a school of uh, psychology, well, you kind of do right like you you do um guide people who are uh who are therapists you still do that and you i think you do the you do the guiding in a way where it's like true to the original intent of the word education it's um you uh you kind of offer things up you add um kind of prompts but it's i think always in service of drawing something out of the person like some new kind of fresh insight or understanding so it's not like you're kind of stuffing information down their throats and you got to memorize these myths. They're so key to our psychology. And if you don't know them, you don't know Jungian, so, you know, that kind of thing, right? No. But it's about the, the drawing no out. No. Yeah. Yeah. So um, mythology being important because it helps to uh, depersonalize the experience. And so what, what does that give somebody? How does that support them? Is it the sense of uh, relief that uh, I'm not the first one to have experienced this calamity in life or um, a sense of belonging to a bigger kind of human culture? That's true. That's a big thing. If you, if you can speak mythologically and understand that somewhat, you are entering into a a, a high level of human culture that's been going on, as I said before, for maybe 2,000 years. It's not new. And it's, it has no, no relevance to the, the philosophy we were talking about before. I don't know what to call it, kind of a quantifying uh, uh, philosophy. Uh, they don't seem to get this idea of using the imagination that way. Just this morning, 
just a personal point. I, I noticed this morning when I was talking to my daughter, who happens to be home for a, for a week, she's a musician now, and she she started studying with me when she was about three months old. <laughs> she, she sat in our circles, and she was just a baby. And But she was there all the time. Ever since then, she's been part of it. So this morning, she said to me, she said, you know, I'm having trouble talking to this friend of mine about, about relationships because she, is, she has so much Artemis in her. Hmm. And I thought, well, that was so nice. That just came out so smoothly uh, that she was able to speak mythologically for a moment. And it expressed so accurately and so fully what she wanted to say that this person, Artemis, is a goddess who doesn't want relationships. Yeah, and <laughs> I was so, going to say that's why she's having trouble with relationships. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> like fierce independence and, um, exactly. and sovereignty, right? Exactly. So, yeah. I thought I just I noted it. I just thought, and I thought about her and how my daughter has been brought up in this thing mm -hmm. for so long. And I think, have I created a monster, or is this really good you know, that she that she's doing this? But she seems to be very comfortable with it, and she's a very bright uh, young woman. So uh, I was very pleased to hear her say so naturally, oh, she just has too much Artemis in her. <laughs> the proud papa. <laughs> Do you hear that? Oh, yes. <laughs> Been steeped in it for many years. Steeped in um, it. Yeah, the thing about Artemis, too, I mean, uh, I would think um, maybe that person has some kind of a wild nature in them that um, doesn't want to be tamed by domesticity and exactly. being tied down to somebody. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So to know that about Artemis, that this is a, you know, it's a mythological figure. That mythological yeah. figure is not a literal, literal goddess, yeah. but she, but she is a power in life. That's what Hillman, the word he used in end of his life. It's a power in life. It's the potency, the power, the way of being in which you are most at home by, at the moment at least, not being interested in relationships so much as maybe developing your own your own life and your own experiences. Mm -hmm. The thing I like about it too um, is that it helps you talk about something without diagnosing right because there'd be other ways to talk about whatever this friend is going through and her relationship troubles yes. uh, that would kind of put her in a a, a box like a Absolutely. diagnostic category right but if you say yes, artemis it opens up the imagination and all of a sudden there's a lot of different moves you could make from there that's so important what you're saying it's not a it's not a judgment or uh Right. No judgment either. It's not a diagnosis. Because Artemis has her place. She's she very important. Yes. So it's all right. And it, it can be difficult. That's what we, when we talk about mythology, we understand that all the gods and goddesses we discuss are wonderful. They give such uh, richness to life. At the same time, they can be very, very difficult. Well, and, and experience difficulty. Like the gods weren't living um, just the the perfect life. That that's the beautiful thing about the um, kind of polytheistic pantheon, is that it gave us uh, so much um, kind of richness and and flavor and variety uh, to relate to in the more than kind of human world. That's right. So uh, going back to what you were saying before, by referring to Artemis you're not talking personally. And so that's why you don't make a personal judgment. And this person doesn't have to feel bad about what you say. You're saying that, yes, we all, these, these figures are universal to uh, anyone, anyone who's human being. And um, so we all might have that experience. And it's not a judgment saying, I'm healthy and you're not. It's saying, oh, you know, I have my problems with Artemis and you are too. It's like we share it. And this brings up, if I may go right into it, uh, another issue that uh, some of my uh, people I learned from used to talk about is uh, what they call the split archetype in therapy. 
that uh, it's very easy to split too much the, the, the role or the identity of the therapist and the client, uh, thinking that the client is someone who's got something wrong and they're going through some suffering and maybe ignorance and difficulty in life right now. But if you, if you, begin, if you think as you're talking to them, well, uh, I've resolved all that, you know, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> if that's what you're thinking, and you divide this thing, so I'm the I'm the healthy one helping this poor slob who doesn't know how to get along in life. That division is is a big obstacle in itself. Hmm. How does that act? What is an an obstacle to? Uh, well, it the main thing it does it uh, it doesn't allow the person to heal themselves. To, so, to figure it out for themselves. To, they, they're totally dependent on having somebody tell them what's happening to them. And that establishes a kind of relationship that is keeps the client then in a kind of a child role, child place. They're being taught by some parent figure what they should think and how they should see themselves. And the alternative would be to talk in such a way that you elicit, it's close to what you were saying about education, to elicit the therapist within themselves and to uh, be able to you know, have a part of themselves sort it out and figure it out and maybe come up with a solution. Hmm. I find um, <laughs> it took me a while to, I think, allow myself to just be really straight with someone um, when they present a, a problem, and I really have no idea, uh, you know, what they should do because I have no experience in that, you know, particular kind of situation. You know, maybe it's a parent with a with an autistic child or something, and I have to, have to say, like, I don't know. I have no idea what the right thing to do is here. I've never had that experience, and. Um, I think at first I was reluctant to um, to say that because I may, um, you know, leave the person feeling like uh, I, I can't help them at all or, you know, and maybe make them even feel more kind of isolated and alone with their problems. Um, but I found actually that uh, it opens something else up. And I think that's what you're getting at is then um, something could come from within them if they're not looking to get it from from me. Yes. There's another side to it, just to make it, you know, suitably complicated. Um, that <laughs> another side is that uh, I think you have to be able to say, yes, I don't know how to handle this. On the other hand, as a therapist, you have to also appreciate that people are coming to you as an expert. And you've got to be an expert. You know, I think you do. I think you have to really develop yourself. We're talking about the education of a therapist. You have to be able to educate yourself to the point that you have a tremendous level of confidence. Even as you can say, I don't know these things. I don't know this. I don't know that. But you also, at the very same time, have a high level of uh, confidence in yourself and a sense of maybe, uh, what's the word, of uh, position, of having accomplished something and becoming a therapist and, and be entering into that bigger role. It's very important for a client to be able to feel your bigness. Mm -hmm. You're really able to do this, that you are a bigger person than they are at the moment. Not altogether, but at the moment, they're in a place where they don't, they're not in touch with their expertise and they're, they're just the opposite. So they've gained something from your confidence and your ability. And I think it's very good to enter that and to uh, be it, that, that strong, big person. Uh, at the same time, then, you're able to be its opposite, which is someone who doesn't know much. Right. Yeah, I think kind of paradoxically, the... Um the confidence from having um not just studied but also gone through life like gone through hardships and and found your way through uh, met challenges and you know 
that kind of confidence, which is more un, more unshakable because it's not based on knowledge or something, you know, like information gathering. Um, that does give you the ability to say, in this particular situation, I have no idea, but I'm here with you. And, you know, maybe through talking about it, we can find a way through or something, you know? Yeah. I find uh, as I get older, I'd hate to talk about age very much, but as I'm older and doing therapy, I uh, I find that that uh, all of that is much calmer than it ever was before in my life. So I feel I feel very relaxed about what I don't know, and I feel very relaxed being, you know, some sort of expert. People turn yeah. to me now because I'm older as being thinking I know more than I do, which is okay. Um, but I, what I'm saying is I'll that I'm <laughs> more comfortable with both of those things. Yeah. Yeah, like not feeling the need to um, downplay your expertise or authority out of a kind of sense of humility or right. or even deference to, you know, your elders. Um, right. Right. No, I don't have that deference that I used to have, no. <laughs> you're the elder now <laughs> well you could always defer to those who have passed on right and like always be bowing at the uh the feet of Jung, you know that kind of thing yeah um we okay so mythology is a good foundation um for being a therapist being able to help people depersonalize their experience kind of broaden their perspective of life's um, travails. Um, what do you think? Like one thing that's been really helpful to me is um, I've become a kind of etymologist. I think words uh, offer a similar kind of uh, opening and uh, a deep foundation in um, in human culture. Uh, they continually teach me. You know, I get curious about a word that I've used for you know decades. And I get curious about it in a different way that makes me want to kind of dig into its roots. And I, I so enjoy that. And it's always a kind of like history lesson in a way. And um, there's, there's psychology in the words too. There's a, there's a story about the psyche and maybe even the way that the kind of human psyche has evolved over the centuries. You know, the way we, we see words differently now than our forefathers did and, so what do you think about etymology as one of these kind of foundational um, educational elements? Well, I use it all the time in my own work as well, but I keep remembering an essay I came upon by Sandor Ferenczi, the early Freudian uh, colleague of Freud. He wrote an essay, on, a very short one on etymologizing, and he yeah. says it's a form of masturbation. He oh, says, how dare he? <laughs> <laughs> I understand. He's. It's like a. It's not in a bad sense. It's just a, a great deal of pleasure that you get. You kind of dig into words. It's like you're moving away from the world and kind of finding all this joy and looking at words. I feel that. I really feel it. I. I know what he's saying. One of those psychoanalytic things. But I just think it's funny. But uh, uh, do you know the book, um, The Origins? Oh gosh, what's it called? The Origins by uh, Richard Onions. No, not ringing it's a bell. A, if you're interested in etymologies, it's one of my favorite books, sources. Uh, what's it called? The Origins of, I'll have to look it up, The Origins hmm. of something. What's the author's name? Richard Onions. Oh, I, I think that's how he spelled, pronounces it. O-N-I-A-N-S. It's like onions, only with an A. Huh. Onions. It but sounds it's close to the word. Latin word for masturbation, doesn't it? What onanism? That's what. Oh, that's right. Onanism. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, very close. So, uh, <laughs> so maybe oh, was... I was thinking it was more of like delving into our um, into our cultural history and into the minds of our ancestors. Okay. Not, I mean. Oh, Right. It's not it's just great. masturbation. No, no, no. I'm, <laughs> I'm, there is a pleasure about it. Yeah. I'm teasing with that because it's just a funny thing that 
because that's what Ferenczi would, would do. The Freudians were so interested in making everything a sexual thing, you know. <laughs> so um, anyway, but no, I think it's a wonderful thing. And I, I uh, you know, Hillman did it and somewhat. I have the, I had some advantage because I had like, I don't know, 10 years of Latin, you know, mm -hmm. I was a monk for a while and we did, I, I studied philosophy for two years. It was taught in Latin, taught. And I had to, I had to answer exam questions in Latin. So I'm, I, the Latin feels pretty, pretty familiar to me and Greek I had through three or four years of Greek. And uh, all of that helps with etymologies. You gotta be accurate with them because it's very easy to be thrown off with your etymologies because they could you some often they're not what they look like. So you have to really be cautious. And I think Hillman was very good with etymologies, but he made some mistakes along the way just because he didn't have that uh, language, those languages. But uh, anyway, I'm not saying you have to, but uh, it, it helps and to, to really have a, a, a real liking and enjoy how words develop and have a history. And they tend to be very concrete the farther you go back and more basic. And even, uh, as I said before, sort of mythological or archetypal. Mm -hmm. Hill said that words are angels. Uh, and what he meant by that, I think, is that the angel is the messenger and the words give us a message, but words don't mean what we, as Alice says, and look through the looking glass, words don't mean what we want them to mean. They have their own meaning. They're angels making announcements and we have to uh, respect the words. And, and, and I feel very often when I hear words used that uh, I'm hearing the etymology rather than the definition. And uh, th that makes it more concrete and more interesting, really. Yeah. Yeah. This was an excerpt of a longer conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks.